Porter QI presents Quality for the Rest of Us with Gail Porter. Investigating the mysterious world of healthcare in search of adventurous innovation and exciting solutions from professionals across the nation. Before we get into the episode, I have some exciting news to share. When I first started out in healthcare quality, I found that even with a certification, I felt like I was having to go to my boss over and over again with questions. How do I do this? Where do I find that? I wished that there was a place I could go where I could find a friendly guide to my job. So now, with over a decade of experience in healthcare quality improvement, working with more than 100 facilities to improve their processes and patient outcomes, I am sharing that experience with you in a new book called Quality for the Rest of Us, a friendly guide to healthcare quality management. Whether you're just starting out or if you've been in the field for years, you can find something that will help you in your quality career in this book. I share all kinds of free resources, explain how to manage different types of data, describe the quality cycle in plain language, and even give tips on how to successfully complete a federal abstraction audit. And best of all, I use practical stories and a conversational tone to teach the basics of healthcare quality management in a way that's approachable for anyone. You can find Quality for the Rest of Us, a friendly guide to healthcare quality management, in your favorite online bookstores. And if you buy a copy and find it useful, I'd love it if you left an honest review. Reviews help readers find interesting books to read, and your help in spreading the word is gratefully appreciated. Thanks so much, and now on to today's episode. It can be challenging in a virtual environment to prove your worth. Who's there to see you slaving away at your job? And how on earth would you measure it? But before we talk about the value of your time, let's talk about some changes in the world of training and education and how that could affect our value proposition. The number of college graduates entering the workforce has almost doubled over the last 40 years. And this increase has created a significant pool of credentialed employees available on the market. While an educated populace does lend itself to the business of the information age, it has also created a perceived need for highly educated staff to complete work that does not require advanced training. Imagine that a business needs someone to maintain their financial database, i.e. a data entry job, So they open a position for an MBA with coding experience when all they actually need is someone with basic Microsoft Office skills. This is what I call eduflation. I can't always tell if this problem of eduflation comes from insecurity, I'll look more impressive if I'm supervising an MBA, or lack of knowledge, I don't really know what's needed to do this job so I'll throw a wide net, or from skillful lobbying from the education sector. If a graduate degree is required for practice, we will get more students and make more money. Regardless of the source, eduflation is expensive and misguided. In the best-selling time management book, Getting Things Done, The Art of Stress-Free Productivity by David Allen, he writes that a lack of edges can create more work for everyone. This means that work that is devoid of boundaries is unlikely to be efficient. That wide net is actually detrimental to progress. He describes organizations that are in a constant morph mode as damaging to productivity. But what about the principles of resilience and a flexible workforce? In the seminal book Zero Harm, Craig Clapper describes how high-reliability organizations discovered that standards created dependability. 
but without flexibility, they could become brittle, unable to adapt to the force of external change. Likewise, it's interesting that one of the pillars of the Toyota Way is flexibility on the manufacturing floor. Staff cross-train and fill duties based on the demand, rather than remaining in a rigid role with no work, while another branch struggles to catch up. Another principle in staffing is to ensure that employees work at the top of their ability, because it is more expensive to pay a physician to mop the floors of the hospital, and that physician may do a poor job of it even while patients wait for a doctor to come and diagnose their illnesses. The counter to this idea is that technology has made it possible for one person to do more. In fact, worker productivity today has grown 59.7% compared to worker productivity in 1979 on average. So the average worker today is worth at least two 1979 employees. That's a crazy thought. But there's a cost to that productivity. For example, when offices integrated personal computers that would take over the jobs of clerical workers, companies quickly took advantage of the cost savings and let support staff go. Experts who used to receive clerical support found themselves alone, learning a new device and taking over the responsibility of answering the phone, sending emails, and conducting general clerical work. Yes, the personal computer made these tasks much more efficient, but it's still an expensive use of an expert's time because their education and experience demand higher salaries. Time spent doing clerical work is time spent not engaged in money-making work. And to be honest, the highest paid professionals are usually not very good at transferring calls and building automation for reminder emails. Their minds are often occupied on big picture ideas and not on the minutia of the office workflow. But someone needs to watch that minutia. In healthcare, we've certainly seen an increase in physicians staying late at work to respond to emails and update charts. It's a rare thing to find a doctor, lawyer, or politician who has a clean email inbox but most administrative assistants easily achieve this feat. Meanwhile, we continue to hear promises that we can replace people with some gadget or another, but healthcare does not occur in a server warehouse. Truly, we are not healthy because of computers, and we are not cared for by computers. Healthcare must come from the people at the bedside, from the people on the other side of the phone, and from those who look you in the eyes and apologize for what went wrong. Otherwise, there is no ownership, no care, and no healthy outcome. So when I hear things like artificial intelligence is going to replace human charting and email, I can't help but be skeptical. This seems like we're just trying to add another highly paid credentialed expert to fill a role that used to be available to a high school graduate. Now we're going to require expensive tech developers to teach a physician to use another program to compose their emails but also to double-check that AI has not created a world of unicorns and wizards instead of telling a patient about their procedure. I foresee physicians losing even more time to clerical work instead of the highly skilled and, more importantly, the profitable and humane work of diagnosing and treating illness. Now, I can understand healthcare organizations' concerns when it comes to staffing. With a pending decrease in available staff due to the looming demographic cliff, I've seen job descriptions that have rolled four positions into one job. Maybe these organizations are trying to one-up quiet quitters. Or maybe they are hoping that AI will be an innovation like the personal computer that increased productivity so much over the last 40 years. Maybe it will make one worker worth four 1979 workers. But if it's the prior reason, they'll almost certainly hire a loud quitter 
who quickly gets overwhelmed, and if the latter, well, that's not really how AI works. Generative AI requires a lot of revision. It's hungry for data and feedback and training. A lot of the time saved in generating content is eaten up in making sure that content is actually correct. And that's not something we want our most credentialed employees doing instead of using their skills generating profits. It's just as bad as having the MBA with coding experience doing data entry. Plus, who wants that kind of liability? AI has notoriously told anorexic patients they need to lose more weight, and it's told suicidal patients how to kill themselves. So someone is going to have to be double-checking content, and if all the support staff is gone, it's going to be our highest-paid experts. The demographic cliff is almost surely going to exacerbate this issue. There were a lot more unskilled laborers in the baby boomer generation than there are in the millennial and zoomer generations. The field will soon be awash with highly credentialed, highly expensive workers with consequently higher costs associated with pushing menial tasks onto them. Organizations need to be looking at the skills and knowledge of current employees and tracking which goals are primary and which goals are secondary to back up other workflows. The primary goals should be honed by the organization's vision, rather than some external force or transient marketing play about the latest fad and technology. Then rather than creating roles that are so broad that they are doomed to fail, we can decide which positions serve as primary roles and which ones we consider menial but so necessary that we need to flex to backfill. Without this understanding, we are sure to lose the vision of healthcare in the shuffle of these menial tasks. So what is the golden balance between flexibility and dependability? If the current AI fad teaches us anything, it's that technology is evolving rapidly. It's no wonder that most young employees hold standards of personal growth above loyalty. Change is stressful. But if everything is going to change anyway, it removes the incentive of staying peacefully in the same position. Employees essentially discover that because change is inevitable, why not consider changing jobs and looking for a raise? Consider that the increase in productivity since 1979 did not accompany a corresponding increase in pay. Productivity increased at three and a half times inflation-driven pay increases, and new generations are very productivity and pay conscious. That is why we should have an adaptive approach when it comes to things like resilience and flexibility in the workplace, while maintaining a clear purpose. For example, when new and changing technology requires adding duties to a worker's daily requirements, consider what duties on their plate can be removed to accommodate the addition. Check their list of primary and secondary duties and shuffle accordingly. It's like adding a new book to a full bookshelf. All the books might be important, but you've got to make space somewhere, and if you can't imagine losing any of the books, it might mean that you're going to need another little bookshelf, aka support staff, to keep all of the books. Knowing why those books are important and need to be on the shelf in the first place is going to help you make those choices. Without a clear purpose, you won't have flexible bookshelves. They get weighed down from being overloaded and become a confusing mess that may come crashing down, rather than a source of innovation and efficiency. In a time of staffing shortages, it's critical to hone the organization's vision and set priorities. That clear and specific vision makes it possible to take brittle systems and make them malleable because the center line is clear. Employees will all know whether they are flexing in one direction or the other 
and the team can learn from the experience, adapting with resilience and strength. Because unless you know where the center line is, you can't tell if you're flexing or if the vision has changed. Employees need to know the difference. Now let's be specific about measuring employee value. We've set ourselves firmly in the context of reality when it comes to eduflation, but I would hate to share generalized, vague tips without any practical solutions for an individual who's facing the daunting task of proving that their position is a value to the company, and this often occurs without any visibility to the company financials. How could a quality analyst prove that they are worth a lot of value to the organization without looking at the cost of errors or the profit from improvement? One slightly less conventional approach is to count the hours saved by your improvement projects. You can survey participants before and after and then calculate the number of hours per week and per year. Then the administrator who has access to the financials can estimate what those hours are worth in saved overtime and productivity. I saw a similar technique used by a registered nurse with an MBA who spoke at my orientation nearly 15 years ago, and it was so innovative at the time that I still remember it. He knew that the ICU was losing a lot of money on overtime. And he also knew that with patient overloads, there was a culture of staying late to help each other on the unit. He gathered all the data on overtime and found that if overtime could be eliminated, he would have enough in his budget to add more nurses. He approached administration with a proposal to add additional staff if he could cut his overtime spending by a specific amount. They agreed. Then he went to the nursing staff and explained that he could ensure their patient load by adding additional staff if they could hand off in a timely manner and trust the next shift to complete what was pending. They agreed. By the end of the quarter, overtime was nearly eliminated and the patient load was never exceeded in the ICU. Retention improved, patient satisfaction improved, and safety measures became a point to brag about. There are solutions to cost and waste, but we will not find them without listening to the needs of clinical staff. And it's entirely possible that waste will increase by cutting key support positions. But these decisions should be made after analyzing the evidence and hearing from the front lines. I certainly couldn't just walk into the boss's office and make the case for why the company should love me and my team. They're not going to give promotions based on feelings and good vibes. Likewise, which positions stay and which ones are replaced by some new gadget needs to be based on meaningful data. That's why most virtual managers and virtual employees have to spend a lot of time proving their value. And the best way to do it virtually is with data. For each automation or efficiency project, ask a before and after question about how much time it takes to complete the task. Keep the data in a spreadsheet to help support the financial impact of quality improvement and risk reduction. Take the time to record all the fees and fines that you're saving by keeping the accuracy at a certain threshold. Your boss will thank you. The Journal of the American Medical Association published an article recently that talked about how quality improvement metrics are expensive but it did not talk about the benefit to reducing costs caused by delays or limiting potential lawsuits from hospital errors, or perhaps most significantly, maintaining government standards to ensure payment from Medicaid and Medicare programs. Personally, I feel disappointed when I see research that shows one side and seems like it was designed to prove a point, rather than seek to understand. Anyone who has worked with a startup with no metrics and no specific goals will tell you how horrifying it can be and how swift the downfall. But there are relevant points here. 
Why don't we work harder to quantify the value of our work and quality improvement? If our metrics are not helping, then by all means we should look at retiring them. But are we really measuring their value? Are we asking? I mean, we can't assume that people are just going to translate all of our acronyms and immediately understand how pivotal we are to their success. We need to sell them in plain language, in dollars and cents and lives saved, about the value of what we do. Did we improve retention? By how much? No matter your role, it is likely that you will at least need to measure and keep a spreadsheet of hours and dollars to help prove the worth of your efforts. Organizations like the National Association for Healthcare Quality, NACU, and ASQ, the American Society for Quality, are providing frameworks and calculators to help us demonstrate our benefit. And I'm happy to share that there is generally a lot more support now for quality professionals needing to prove value during economic hardship, and we would be remiss to ignore these opportunities. In reality, most of these organizations really do need to cut waste to manage inflation and the high cost of skilled employees post-pandemic. But the quality department is not a frivolous cost to be cut. Rather, the team of quality analysts can help find the best answer to that problem if they are allowed to participate. The opportunity we have inside the quality department is to look at total value, including the cost to the organization, when we prioritize projects and design data collection methods, for example. If we can automate our own audits inexpensively, that's a great option. Or if the value for something is incredibly high, it's probably worth the additional expense. We just need to quantify the value of prevention and improvement so the folks who draft the budget can count exactly how much it's truly worth. Thanks for listening to Quality for the Rest of Us. If you found this episode helpful, please consider liking and subscribing so you'll be notified when future episodes come out. If you have thoughts or questions, you can email qforus at porterqi.com. And if you're interested in joining our community, visit porterqi.com. You'll find podcast archives, helpful articles, innovative tools, and a knowledgeable group of professionals just like you. That's porterqi.com. I hope to see you there.